Well, if you have your Bibles this morning, I would like to invite you to turn to, uh, again, back to Proverbs chapter 14. And uh, we have been coming through chapter 14 as we have been been coming through the whole book of Proverbs. And uh, today we're going to look at uh, several uh, more verses here. And you're going to see how that each one will uh, really carry a solid, uh, yet unfortunately a sometimes very tragic truth with it. You know, as you know by now, Proverbs is a book written um, in a very unique style. It, it, it really is. And uh, it's, a, it's a book of one-liners, of, of one-liners of truth that are just loaded. I mean, you could just take one verse at a time. And, um, you know, uh, when we actually started Proverbs, I really wondered if we'd ever make it through the whole book by the time the Lord came back. There's just so much in it. And we're still only to chapter 14. There's 30, 30 uh, chapters in it. So, 31. So we're, we're moving along here, but we're, we're learning a lot from it. And, you know, it's a book uh, that uh, really I gave you the outline when we started. And I think the outline is absolutely crucial in understanding how the book is relevant to you and me. Most people don't know this. Most people never figure this out. But every book of the Bible uh, has an outline to it, a natural outline, not one that man came up with. Uh, when, God, uh, when God put the Word of God together, He put some natural divisions in it. And when a person finds those natural divisions in each book of the Bible, it really makes it a lot easier because uh, it, it, God shows you the way that He wants it to be broken down and really the way He wants it to be studied. And I showed you the outline when we started, how that chapter 1 through chapter 7, every chapter starts out there where He addresses my son or my little children. And uh, that first seven chapters is, is the, shows you the value of getting instructions from your Heavenly Father. And he'll go through in those seven chapters, before he ever gets to one proverb, he'll go through those seven chapters and begin to talk about why it's so important to get the instructions from your Heavenly Father. And then when we get into chapter 8 up through chapter 30, we have the, uh, we have the proverbs themselves. And this is where we're at now, the one-liners uh, that, that, that are just incredible uh, that deal with uh, all the things that we have to face in life. And then we come to Proverbs chapter 31, which is the last chapter. And there we find the finished product and a great exposition of the virtuous woman, who we know that from a doctrinal standpoint will be the nation of Israel as God's wife. From an inspirational standpoint, It'll be you and me as the child of God, the bride of Christ. In both cases, a bride and a wife who has <clears throat> taken the instructions of the Father, applied the principles, and now we see the end result in our lives. You know, and the Christian life is just that simple. I mean, you know, we like to make it complicated. We like to make it hard. We like to make it like if you've got problems in your life or your marriage or with your family or your own personal life, that it's some great thing that has to go on for all of your life. That's simply not true. The Bible is such an easy uh, application to whatever problems we have in, in the natural realm of problems. You just get the right instructions, one. Two, you apply the instructions. And three, the end result will take care of itself. It's just that simple. And each verse from chapter 8 through chapter 30 will be a simple commentary on truths about life on planet Earth. You know, I grew up in an era where the favorite saying was, tell it like it is. Had it on t-shirts, heard it everywhere you went. This is back in the 60s and the 70s. 
And the great phrase was, tell it like it is. But you know, in truth, nobody really wanted to hear it like it really was. People would say that because it sounded neat. It was a cute saying. But nobody ever really wanted the truth. They just wanted to have be part of the whole crowd that used that expression. But certainly the book of Proverbs is a book that uh, tells it like it is when it comes to the issues of life. Last week, we saw one of the greatest one-liners anywhere in all of the Bible. Uh, verse 13, where it said, There is a way that seemeth right unto men, but the end thereof are the ways of death. And we looked at how that people will get focused on things that they absolutely think is the right way to do something. And it's not. Now, I want to read five verses here today, verses 13 through 17, and then look at them individually, and we're going to try to see some great truths out of them about life uh, and, uh, and how it uh, really affects you and me. Now, in Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, and we saw this when we started Proverbs, the Bible says that the problems that we have, the issues of life, they start in a man's heart. Proverbs 4, 23 says, Keep thy heart with all diligence, for out of it are the issues of life. And I can safely say, and you probably already know this, even if you wouldn't publicly admit it, every problem we have, I don't care where it winds up, every problem we have, it started with us. And it maybe wasn't your fault, but it started with you or me not handling it the right way. And then it just kind of goes from there. And the book of Proverbs, through its truth about life, will expose uh, a couple of things. It'll expose, when it comes to the heart of man, the book of Proverbs will expose the heart of a fool. That's somebody who will not take instructions. Or the book of Proverbs will expose the heart of a wise man. That's a man who takes God's instructions. And sitting here this morning, we fall in one category or the other, saved or lost. Now, I want to read Proverbs chapter 14, verses 13 through 17, and then we'll begin to make some comments about it. He says this, Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. The simple believeth every word, but the prudent man looketh well to his goings. A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rages and is confident. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly, but a man of wicked devices is hate hated. Scott Heaton, would you ask God's blessing on our service this morning for us, sir? Heavenly Father, we're just grateful to gather together to have one word in front of us that we know is the true word. We're grateful that you give that to us. We're thankful for Bob. Pray that our ears are open and our hearts are Amen. Thank you, my friend. Now, verse 13 says, Even in laughter the heart is sorrowful, and the end of that mirth is heaviness. Now, this will be the fool of Proverbs. This man has rejected the clear principles of God. He has forsaken any kind of instruction, and he's now completely swaddled up with life in the compounding effect of life uh, without God. And this is what happens. We have problems in our lives for whatever reason, pride, <clears throat> embarrassment, simply the fact <clears throat> that we don't want to deal with the problem. The problem goes on. We actually think that with time, we will solve the problem. 
Well, if you could solve the problem, you would have solved the problem. So what happens is you make more problems, bad decisions, bad choices, and in time, the problem gets very complex and comes a very complicated situation to have to deal with. And this man here, who hides all of his sorrow and heaviness with laughter and mirth, he can be a saved man or he can be a lost man. Life will be filled with these individuals and their stories of a tragic, complex life that just goes on and on and seemingly never comes to an end. In my 40-plus years in the ministry, I've seen hundreds of them, dealt with hundreds of them. And, you know, they have no joy whatsoever. These people, their happiness depends on the happenings in life. They wake up and win the lottery. It's a great day. They wake up and somebody turned their lights off because they didn't pay the bill. They have a bad day. Everything in life rises and falls on the happenings in life. So he runs with the in crowd. Uh, he's... You know, he, he, he's in and out of relationships or, you know, he, he gets into relationships and he, he goes to parties and he tells jokes and he drinks and he gets high. He goes to pool parties, tailgate parties. He goes to football games, boxing matches. He goes to basketball, hockey and golf outings. He or she surrounds themselves with things that they think will make them happy and make them laugh because they think that laughing at things is happiness. But in truth, they're absolutely miserable because they're empty inside. You know, I, I've told you before, to me, the greatest example of this is on New Year's Eve in Times Square. You have a million plus people. That place is packed. And you have a million plus people who are there standing shoulder to shoulder. And in most cases, they are most miserable, lonely people on the planet. They go there for one reason, to watch the new year come in, hoping that this next year will be better than the last year. And in fact, it will only bring more misery and disappointment in life because happiness and completeness and fulfillment doesn't come just by the start of a new year. You say, well, we got a new year. We got a new start. No, no, no. Unless something dramatically changes within you, you just got another new year to make more bad choices. And you know, and there's been some great examples of this in, in our lives around us. You know, I, I look back at some of the great entertainers in show business and a lot of the movie stars. And, you know, I'm the last guy that's an expert on, you know, I, I know the old singers, all these new guys, you know, Avance or whoever that guy is or girl is. or I mean, who's this guy that died this week? What was his name? Who? Was he kin to Jim Bowie? <laughs> In the album, I don't know. I don't, I, don't, I don't follow it. I go, the only closest I ever get to People Magazine and Star Magazine and Comedy Central and National Enquirer is the checkout at the grocery store. They're right on the rack. And I usually catch the first. But I remember guys like Hank Williams. Hank Williams died in 1953. I was three years old. His music, I grew up with his music. He's the one that wrote the great song that, that the boys sing here, you know, I Saw the Light. And, uh, you know, uh, he probably impacted country music uh, probably in his day more than anybody else. But he didn't live very long. He died at 29. He died at 29 as an alcoholic. He died in, a, he died in, uh, uh, in West Virginia on his way to a place to do a concert. And, and uh, he died uh, in the back of a car going from there. 
And one time they, a cab driver picked him up and he was so drunk he couldn't, uh, he couldn't even figure out where it was going on and he was laying in the back uh, out of his mind and the cab driver was going and he recognized he had Hank Williams and he says, hey, Hank, he said, sing us some of that song, I Saw the Light. Oh, Hank says, there is no light. There is no light. Miserable. I think of Johnny Cash. What a tough life he had with drugs and alcohol. I think Elvis Presley. I heard coming over here listening to a gospel station. They were playing Elvis Presley singing Amazing Grace or something like that. And I thought to myself, you know what? We get so fooled because a person has a great voice. Here's a guy who was on drugs all his life, who probably is responsible for sending more people to hell than he ever was to heaven. But he's a Christian. I saw, just flipping through the channels, this, this uh, stupid movie, Two and a Half Men. I'm not sure, watching just a bit of it, I'm not sure who the half man was. It could have been any one of them. But, but, you know, Charlie Sheen. It's funny. Everybody laughs. It's a comedy. But there are some of the most tragic lives you have ever seen off camera. I think of Robin Williams. Probably the funniest man on earth. Made the whole world laugh. I mean, his, his famous for his comedy and satire and the funny impersonations that he did. I mean, he'd laugh yourself sick. I, I still, I mean, I'll never forget. The only thing I movie ever saw him in was Good Morning Vietnam. But it was hilarious. And I would watch him when he would come on and he would make people laugh at the drop of a hat. But last year he died. And when he died, he died a depressed, unhappy, broken suicide. After all his years of laughter and mirth, at the end of his life, the proverb was true. Now, you know what? The proverb is always true. His laughter was a mask for his sorrow. And I'm telling you, the book of Proverbs is the greatest commentary on life you'll ever find anywhere. Look at the last part of that verse. And the end of that mirth <clears throat> is heaviness. You know, in the Bible, there's a great study. There's four kinds of laughter in the Bible. It's usually, whenever I preach it, I preach it under the message of the laughter of God. But in the Bible, there's four distinct laughters recorded for you. Three of them are bad. One of them is good. And when we start looking about how that uh, the mirth is heaviness and all of the sorrow that's in a man's heart and he laughs about it, it brings to mind one of the, a couple of the laughters, Ecclesiastes chapter 7, verse 6, where it talks about the laughter of sinful merriment. People saved and lost who are part of the world, who laugh at the things in the world to try to be happy. Their laughter is around the dirty jokes and all of the things and the stories and everything that they see. I think of Genesis chapter 17, the other laugh with Abraham and Sarai, which was the laughter of skepticism. God came down and told, told Abraham what he was going to do. Now, Abraham is almost 90 years old, and his wife is in her high 80s. And God comes down and says, I'm going to give you a promised seed. And the Bible says that they both laughed. And yet God brought that seed to pass. There's many of God's people to look at the promises of God and look at their circumstances, and they laugh at the promises of God. And nothing says more about a man or a woman than how they, they are at the end of their life. 
You know, the Bible, and one of the greatest studies you'll ever undertake in the Word of God is to study the last thing that a man does in the Word of God. Sometimes the last thing he says. Sometimes it'll be the last thing that God says about him. You ought to think, you ought to see, the, you ought to look at a man like Abraham and look at the last thing in his life where he was from where he started. Moses, Paul, Stephen. I mean, you ought to, you ought to look at the, <coughs> the last thing God says about David. You ought to look at the last thing Timothy says before he dies. Incredible study. Incredible study. And when you look at it, it shows what a man is really all about, where he really put his value system, where his real, his priorities are. And all the mirth and lightheartedness is just a mask to hide the heaviness of our hearts. Man one time said, <coughs> and it's so true, we laugh before man, but we'll weep before God. Boy, that is a true statement. And a man will come to the end of his life and he'll realize that he has been one of two things. He's been deceived in all of his life and now he's empty. His marriage is a wreck, his family's a wreck, his personal life's a wreck. And he'll come to the place that he thought that all his grandioso ideas, all the great philosophies of life that he followed, everything that he thought would get him ahead and get him, and he didn't need God, he didn't need the church, he didn't need the Bible. No, no, no. He was going to figure it out for himself. And he deceived himself, and now he's empty. Or he's fulfilled all his life through the Word of God. He's complete now through the Word of God, and he's full of the joy that only comes from a relationship with the Word of God. And if he's been faithful, here comes the... Here comes the fourth laugh, a third laugh in the Bible. If he's faithful, he has the laugh of victory found in Psalms 126.2. The laugh of a Christian who gets through this life. And when he stands there with the Lord, looks back, and now the devil can't hurt him anymore. The world can't hurt him anymore. People can't hurt him anymore. Bless God, he's home with the Lord, and he has a good laugh about it. Or if he's been deceived, and he weeps before God, he'll hear the fourth laughter, the laughter of God, Psalms 2, 4, the laugh of condemnation. Incredible. Incredible. There's an old saying says, uh, that people use that says that he that laughs last, laughs best. And that's right straight out of Psalms chapter, or Proverbs chapter 2, because that's exactly, or Psalms chapter 2, that's exactly what it is, because God always has the last laugh. Now look at verse 14. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways, and a good man shall be satisfied from himself. Now this is a great verse, and it's a classic. And there's a lot here for all of us to glean from and apply to our own selves. Look at the first part of the verse. The backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. It says the backslider in heart shall be filled with his own ways. Now it says that when a man or a woman backs now it says that when a man or a, a woman backslide from God and you got to understand backsliding that word is not a new testament term it's used in the old testament for the nation of Israel we use it today <coughs> that's okay but primarily it's talking about Israel backsliding from God technically speaking not to make this a, a theological lesson but a new testament christian cannot backslide 
Israel could backslide. You and I can't. We just get out of fellowship. They can slide backwards. You can't, but you understand where it's coming from. You, it's okay if you use it. But you know, the principle is if you think something long enough or about it long enough, you'll do it. Proverbs 23, 7 says, as a man thinketh in his heart, so is he. You know, in Luke chapter 15, verse 11, you have the story of the prodigal son. And that story of the prodigal son is one of the greatest stories in the Bible that shows somebody who leaves the things of his heavenly father and then goes out into the world and then has to find out that the world is not what he thought it was. But you know what the real key is? The real key is this verse here. It says the backslider in heart. I want to tell you something. That prodigal son was in the far country in his heart long before he got to the far country in a geographical location. Because it starts in your heart. It always starts in man's heart. It's the number one reason Christians get out of fellowship and go into the world. A man or woman starts thinking in his heart that, you know, that uh, about getting his or her way over God's way. And then in time, he just fills himself to the top, to the brim with himself, and God is pushed out. An old evangelist said one time years ago, and I'll never forget what he said, and he says, you know what, right now, if you love something more than God or the Word of God, right now in your life, if there's anybody, anything that you love more than God or that book right now in your life, you're already on your way to the far country. I saw a bumper sticker the other day, and it's, it's such a true statement, especially in America today. Just said that the cost of freedom is eternal vigilance. And that is so true. And you know, for a child of God, nothing can stop the decay of our relationship with God. And you got to know by now that when you get saved, you can have the very best intentions. You can dedicate your life to God. You can be everything that you want to do. But the moment you get up off your knees and you walk out that door as happy as can be, your Christian life now is beginning to erode. I've preached some great messages over the years with some great revivals and some great people and people getting saved and God really coming down and doing some things. And I'm never so foolish that I don't understand <clears throat> You can have the greatest preaching service on the planet. You can have a thousand people come forward and get their lives with God. The place for a moment in time can rock with the Spirit of God. And the moment everybody says amen and the last song is sung and they head out that door, the devil starts to do his work. And for a child of God, nothing can stop that decay of our relationship more than a constant vigilance. Last Saturday in the people ministry, we finished up the seven pillars of marriage, but obviously those of you who are here now, you know how that will work in an exceptional way for uh, premarital counseling, but it also it works in a great way for just dealing with marital problems. It talked about the seven basic pillars that marriage has to be founded on for it to work. And I talked about how that in a marriage, you have to maintenance your marriage. And I used the example, very simple example of your car. You go buy a new car and drive it off the lot like the day you got married. 
And you know what? You put some miles on that car, they tell you you got to have the oil changed every four or 5,000 miles. Used to be every 3,000, but now they got better oil, I guess. I don't know. And, they, you know, and in time, your brakes are going to go out. In time, you're going to have to do maintenance on it. And, you know, and people buy a car, they understand that, and uh, they'll sign up for a service contract, you know, where you bring it in, we'll rotate your tires free, and they'll do all that stuff. And you make sure that your car is maintenance because you depend on that car to get you where you want to go in life. And you never one time think about when you get married in that chapel and you walk out that door, you begin now to go down life road just like your car goes down a road or a highway. And in both cases, you start to put mileage on it. And things will wear out. Things will go bad. Things will have to be maintenanced. I told them that on your dashboard of your car, you got that little red warning light. And I know I've seen the same thing. I, you know, I, I, the thing I hate about me most is the thing that you ought to hate about you too. We just think we know more about it than anybody. I still think I know more how to get where I'm going than the lady on the GPS. And I don't trust anybody that can change languages just like that. She says, go down this road. I know a quicker way to get there. And you know what? When my red warning light comes on my car, my first thought is, that's the manufacturer so they can get more money out of my pocket. Because they're the only one that can turn it off. I don't know up at Ford, John, or, and, and Jan, but someplace out there in Ford, when you're putting those cars together, there's some little guy out there, he's probably a midget who crawls up under that dashboard and puts that red light in there and then fixes it so nobody can turn it off but him. But my first thought is, that's just them. It's running okay. I don't have to fix it. I'm not going to take it in and, and spend some money just to get a red light turned off. And you find out that maybe the manufacturer put it on there, but there's something wrong. How many times we've looked at our own marriage our own walk and our relationship with God is what I'm talking about here. And you know when the warning light comes on. Amen. You're not stupid. You know exactly when that light comes on. A lot of women, a lot of guys too, on their car, they just ignore it. A lot of others make excuses about it. And when it comes to your own personal relationship with God or your marriage, when that red warning light comes on, you better take it seriously. You know why? Because your car needs maintenance, your marriage needs maintenance, and your relationship with God needs a maintenance. A total, constant vigilance. And just like we get wear and tear on your car or a marriage, when you put miles on it, you'll put some miles on your relationship with God, and it'll require some maintenance. You know, as a Christian, your oil will get low, and that red light comes on. You know when it comes on. You know in a moment when you don't start handling things the right way. Where yesterday or two weeks ago you did. I've had, I don't know how many people tell me when they struggle with something. You know what? I know what the principle is. I know what to do. I know this. I know that. I understand that. That's your little red light coming on saying your oil level is low. Because every day you need to be filled with the Holy Spirit of God. Some of you in life, in your Christian life, you know what your problem is? You don't know when to stop. You don't know when to stop. 
You'll just go on in life. You'll get involved in this. You'll get involved in that. You do not know when to stop. You know what your problem is? Your brakes are wore out. (laughs) Your brakes are gone, man. Somebody is hitting here this morning and you're not right with God. You know you're not. You know there's things in your life that are between you and God and the very bottom line is it, your water pump's broke. But washing of regeneration is the only thing that gets you clean of the Word of God. Some of you can't see very clearly this morning. You, once you did, you saw everything in the Bible very clear. Now it's kind of muddled. You now you don't see it. Now, where before you saw things clear, you say, yeah, I see it. Now you're saying, mm, I don't know. You know what your problem is? Your windshield wipers need replaced. You're not seeing the real world as clearly as you once did. There needs to be some maintenance done. There needs to be some maintenance done. Because on the road, either the road and the highway of life or the road of highway of spiritual things, one of these days your car's going to break down or your body's going to break down. Either way, you're going to be dead in the water with nowhere to go. Look at the last part of verse 14. And a good man shall be satisfied from himself. Now that's a strange verse. First of all, a good man. I'll be honest with you. According to Romans chapter 3 verse 10, there's none to do with good, no, not one. There's nothing good about me. And there's nothing good about you. But when you understand what the Bible is saying here, you realize that our good or any goodness that you may have is Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is my goodness. When we say, oh, my goodness, you're saying, in an essence, oh, my, oh, 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 Lord, oh, Jesus. He's the only goodness that we have. And any goodness will only be Jesus Christ. And that's the only good that, that ever happened to me. And if I have any goodness at all, it certainly isn't because of Bob Alexander or me or this. It's simply because of the fact that, you know what, Jesus Christ is inside me. And, and that's the best thing that ever happened to me. And on my worst day and my worst nightmare, he's always good. Now, now look at the last part of that. Shall be satisfied from himself. This is what I want to talk about. Now, Bible says that in me, my flesh dwelleth no good thing. Bible says, Romans 3, that none to do with good, no, not one. That all of my righteousness is filthy rags in the sight of God. But here it says, shall be satisfied from him, not with himself, from himself. Now, I want to tell you something. The only good thing that I have that satisfies me, that's from me, is when I do what's right and come away with a good conscience toward God. A good conscience in the fact that I did what he said his way and not my way. Listen, there is nothing more satisfying in this life than to know in any given situation that we have followed the biblical principles and did what God wants us to do. As I speak this very moment, there's thousands of Christians out there in the world today who right now, and they're as saved as could be, and many of them have made a decision in life or done something in life or made some kind of change in life or did whatever in life, and now they're sitting here today because it didn't work out for them the way that they thought it was going to. And now they're sitting this morning second-guessing themselves. Well, did I, was God really in it or really wasn't in it? Did I do this on my own or did he do this on my own? And they're struggling with that. And when you have a good conscience toward God, 
You don't have to worry about decisions you make because you always, always want to have a biblical principle behind everything that you do. The definitive verse on a good conscience toward God is 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 5, if you don't have it in your Bible already. And it says there that a good conscience comes from a pure heart. It comes from faith unfeigned, not fake. In other words, doing it by the principles of the Word of God. No ulterior motive. Using the clear principles because you know and understand that God never violates his own principles. Hey, I've seen some of God's people want to do something in their life. In all of their life, when it came to dealing with people or dealing with this or dealing with that, they used good biblical principles. But when it, point, when it came to something that they wanted to do, they threw the principles out. That's how we are. You know, sometimes I've had folks get upset with me in dealing with some of their problems or uh, some things that they were involved in or maybe wanted to do. And, and honestly, I feel bad about that. But I must tell you, at the end of the day, uh, I work out of the principles of a book. And when you've caused the issue with yourself or with your family or your kids or with your wife by not doing it biblically by the book, I, I don't see the point of me just adding to the confusion of getting involved uh, and setting aside and not getting into the only thing that will fix your problem, and that's the Word of God. So I always stay with the book. I always stay with it. Listen, there is no natural sin. There's no marital problem. There's no family issue that a man or a woman gets into that if they'll simply start doing what they need to do, not what they want to do anymore. That's got you where you're at. If you'll just do what he needs to do, they can be on the way to fix that thing and solve that thing in a very short time. It's just that simple. You know, one thing about me, and you might as well know it, and I guess it's a good thing. I don't know. It gets me in a lot of trouble sometimes. But I will never tell you what you want to hear. I just never will. I won't stand in this pulpit and tell you what you want to hear. If you come in to see me, I will love you. I'll be there for you. I'll walk through whatever problem you got. You'll never have to go alone again. I think there's a song about that. If I had the words, I'd sing it for you right now. Uh, but it's a thing where you'll never have to go by yourself through anything again. But I will never tell you what you want to hear. I will always tell you what the Bible says. And besides all that, honestly... I sleep a lot better at night with you mad at me when I did it by the book than I would doing it your way and have God mad at me. And I'm telling you, nothing, I mean nothing, beats a pure heart. Nothing beats unfeigned faith and a good conscience toward God. And a good man shall be satisfied from himself when he can look at things in life that he did, choices that he's made, situations that he's in, and he can simply say to himself, you know what? I did it by the principles of the Word of God. And this is why. This is why. I constantly, constantly, in everything we do, try to hold before you the importance and the value of learning biblical principles. Now look at verse 15. The simple believeth every word, <clears throat> but the prudent man <clears throat> looketh well to his goings. The simple believer with every word. Nothing will ever be truer in this life. Boy, we see it all the time. What a profound verse. <clears throat> the simple. 
If you know anything about <clears throat> the book of Proverbs or you're <clears throat> staying up with us through it, we talked about this simple guy in chapter 5 and again in chapter 7. And there's an example there of a, of a young man, and the Bible says in Proverbs chapter 7, verse 7, that this young man is a simple guy, and he's void of any understanding. He has no Bible at all. And what he does is put in the, is put in the context of that he's out on the street corner, and he sees this harlot. And she is painted up and looks absolutely great. And she walks down there and talks to him and flicks her big eyelashes or whatever and and talks like that. And he is mesmerized for her. She speaks to him and says, oh, you know, I'm a Christian. I've made my peace vow. Come up and, you know, we'll take our fill of love till tomorrow. Oh, yeah. And he falls right for it. Now, we know who know the Bible that that woman is a picture of false religion. And it shows how a simple young man will fall into false religion because last week there is a way that seemeth right, but they enter over the ways of death. And she looked good. I mean, she had, she, she looked good. And most false religions look good. And he fell for it. Why? He didn't have any understanding. And we know that, that that's a picture of how people who are simple, who have no truth, no Bible, no principle. And from the Bible standpoint, they're a fool. He'll believe whatever he sees, whatever he hears, whatever somebody tells him. When it goes along with his belief system that he wants to believe. And there's some famous quotes on this verse that down through life that people have put out there, and it's just so true. Somebody said, you believe easily what you hope for earnestly. Adolf Hitler said, great masses of people will believe a great lie quicker than a small one. So true. And the general rule in life is an established truth of human nature that most of us are ready to believe something evil something bad, faster than something good. You know, it's so true. You can talk to somebody about getting saved, and they'll blow you off. Heaven, blow you off. <clears throat> you talk to them about drinking, partying, fornicating, and all things go with it. There, you got their full attention. You know why? Because it's easier for human nature to be drawn to do what is wrong than it is to believe what's right. Oh, it's an incredible verse. Incredible verse. And as they say on the street, a sucker is born every minute. And you already know that everything on the internet is true. <laughs> Bonjour. <laughs> on the other hand, <clears throat> the prudent man. Now, prudent means <clears throat> he's careful. Prudent means that he's cautious. Prudent means he proves all things. He gets his facts. He doesn't just run in and throw caution to the wind. He's seen some things. He has some experience. He has good instructions. And he has understanding. And he's smart enough to know that the absolute standard of all truth will always be the Word of God. 
Now, you know what? I don't know that all of you, where you're at with the Lord, I know that some of you are very <clears throat> high up on a level. I, you know, are invaluable to me, most of you, a lot of you. And I know some of you are, <clears throat> are midline people who are, who are getting where you need to be and, and you're right on track. And some of you are just new Christians and you're doing great and you're moving along and you'll be at that point someday. I say all that to say this. No matter what spiritual level you're on, if you know and understand today that the Word of God is the absolute standard for all truth in life, you're going to get wherever you want to go in life with God. Because that will be the fundamental ticket that will get you there. I can teach you everything else. You can learn everything else. That's the hardest thing to get people to learn that there is an absolute standard found in the Word of God, which is the standard for all truth. That's the problem. And you know as well as I do, you can only have one authority. Now, I'm, I say that. You can have, you know, you can have two authorities. You take a husband and a wife who are battling it out. She wants to be the authority. He wants to be the authority. Yeah, you can have two authorities. I guess I should have said you can only have one final authority. And that has to be the Word of God. Last week, that book is what we judge everything by. I showed you last week. He that spiritual judgeth all things that comes into his life. Running whatever you hear and see and read and are told through the book, not around the book, but through the book. Oh, that's so important. You know, I, I have done a lot of dumb things in life. I really have. But God has given me a couple of really key things to help me in my stupidity along the way. Some things that are very insightful to me. You know, <clears throat> I, I'm no rocket scientist. I, I, I feel that I'm a reasonably intelligent guy. I, I, I can carry on a conversation with most people about most things. History, whether it be world history, church history, American history, European history, English history, Bible history. I know a fair amount about science. I know quite a bit about astronomy. I try to stay up on current events. I try to stay relevant to social issues. Don't talk to me about math. Trigonometry, jigonometry. All out of the pit of hell. <laughs> oh, it is. It is. It is. It is. It is. You guys go through that thing. When I was in school, the big thing was geometry and then trigonometry. And when people that went to that class really thought they were something. I'll be honest. I had a tough time getting out of general math. I did. But you know what? As it turns out, I was much smarter than they were. This was a long time ago. They went through all of that. Memorized all that stuff. I mean, spent hours taking tests and learning about the roots of this and that and whatever all that stuff is. And you know what? Right after they graduated, and there I had math where I could just do the little simple thing. But you know what? As soon as they all graduated, held up their degrees. You know what came out? Texas Instrument. Put a computer, a little hand calculator. All you had to do was push everything in. What was the point? No. Sometimes I appear more stupid than I really am. Not often. Sometimes I'm just stupid most of the time. Sometimes I appear to be dumber about things than I am. I found in, in dealing with people that sometimes that's a great advantage. 
I, I found out when you get into a debate and discussion with somebody about the Bible, King James Bible. I, I learned that from a preacher one time who, who was an expert pool player. He was excellent. And I was terrible. And I was just a young guy. And we were over someplace having a staff fellowship. And he says, come on, Bob, I'll play a game of pool. And I said, well, I'm not very good. And he said, well, I'm not very good either. And so I said, okay. So, you know, and I, and I you know, and I, I'm terrible. But, you know, I, again, you think you're better than you are. And, and he was an absolute expert. So he, 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 he says to me, he says, now, you know, the, the rack thing, he says, now, now, what is this for? And I'm thinking, well, he really is stupid. Yeah. And I said, well, you, you rack up all the balls with that one. And he said, oh, like this? And I said, yeah. And then he says, now, we got a ball left over. And I said, that's the cue ball. I said, that's what you break him with. Oh, okay. He said, well, I think I'm going to like this game. He knew everything there was about the game. But he got me now in a false sense of confidence, you know. And so he says, you go first. So I, I rack, you know, chalked up and hit the thing, and it went everywhere. And then I, 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 I put one in. When it didn't go in, it kind of went off that thing. And it was an easy shot that I missed. And I said, now, he says, is it my turn now? And I said, yeah, it's your turn. He cleared the board. Poof, 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 poof. And he looks at me, and he says, that's a fun game. I think I'm going to play that again. You want to go again? I said, no, I do not want to go again. But I learned a great truth. Sometimes when you appear to be stupid about something, dumb about something, ignorant about something, it works to your advantage. I mean, I've been many times when somebody tried to call me on the cuff of the Bible and they got a college education, a couple degrees, me, I don't have anything. They got a, you know, doctor's degree, you know, PhD, post-hole digger. I mean, they got everything, you know, and I got nothing. I got my BA. I'm born again. That's all I got, <laughs> which is enough. <clears throat> So I'll let them go, you know, and when they get this thing up that I'm really stupid, then you just, it's kind of like Rocky won when Creed was so big into that fight and they started out and he's, Rocky's cracking the meat, you know, with his hands and, and they're, you know, over there and the guy, his manager saying, hey, hey champ, you better look at this guy. He's taking this thing serious. He's so busy doing everything, making money, sending roses to all the mayor's wives. He says, yeah, I mean business too. And he looks at him. And first thing, he thinks he's got him. He's out there, and I think within the first 15 minutes, Rocky hit him with an uppercut that put him on the ground. He never saw it coming. You know why? Because he thought Rocky was stupid. He thought he was a bumbler. And sometimes when you get into those situations, if you play your cards close to your chest and let them think you're stupid, you can catch them with a the right uppercut that will put them right on the bat. And that's what you want. In Jesus' name, of course. In Jesus' name. <laughs> I mean, I'm not talking in the physical sense. Give me a break. Some of you looking so serious out there like he's going to hit me or something. No, I'm not going to hit you. Well, I am. You just ain't going to know it. <laughs> but a long time ago, over 30-some years now, I realized that there was a really big world out there. And there was a lot of things I had to learn. But I also knew there were many guys who got into these things who actually lost their faith in God and the Word of God. Young Christians, they'll get saved. 
They'll never get grounded in the Bible the way they should. So they'll read something, somebody will tell them something, they'll hear something, and it now the Bible isn't this and it's this. It's, it's because they're this guy right here. They believe everything that's told to them because they have no grounding. So I, I didn't want that to happen to me. So I, I, I took 10 years of my life and got really grounded in the book. When we started our church, one of the first things I did, it's still on the website, is I went through every book of the Bible, and I de- detailed out uh, everything in the Bible, that book. I did it so that anybody down the line could take that study, sit down with Genesis or whatever book you wanted, and when you were done, you'd have everything at your fingertips to understand that book. Because that's the essence of what I did, in that sense. I mean, I'm telling you, there's 31,176 verses in the King James Bible. I guarantee it. There's 1,189 chapters. I it took 10 years cross-referencing everything from one to the other. I, I, I had to get that done. And when I was totally convinced and rock solid in God's word that nothing could shake me, that I began to read and study and digest everything the world had on the great things of life that man has come up with. I remember going into the KU bookstore up in Lawrence and buying 30 books that they used as textbooks that year and devouring those books, reading books on art and music, architecture, getting the liberal mindset of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I read every book. We talk about the King James Bible and, and, and my defense of it. Let me tell you something. I read every book put out by the Westcott Hort crowd and the Alexandrian cult, I mean, uh, that they ever put out before I ever got into anything else. All the books on church history by Newell and by Robinson, and, and most of them were non-church history books. They were ridiculous. But I looked at socialism and communism and fascism and studied pragmatism and altruism and heterism, existentialism. I read the works of Voltaire and Kant and Nietzsche who claimed that God was dead. I read the 12 or 14 volumes, I can't remember how many it was, of the history of civilization by Will Durant. Classics! I went through the age of reason and the age of enlightenment. I studied the agricultural age in America, the industrial age in America, the information age in America, the space age in America, and now today, the technology age of America. I heard that the Illuminati was behind the world takeover, so I studied the Illuminati. Somebody else said it was the Masons, so I studied the Masons. I went through the Da Vinci Code material 25 years before they ever made the movie. I read the works of Josephus. Well, I wanted to work with people, and a lot of them were drunks, and a lot of them were drug addicts, so I actually went through the 12 steps of AA and, and, and Narcotics Anonymous. Got my little certificate. I'm clean. <laughs> I looked at the great religions of the world. I studied Buddhism and Confucianism. I looked at being a Buddhist in the Wheel of Life. I clipped out the little ad in the TV guide back in the 70s that you could send into the Roman Catholic Archdiocese and they would send you Catholic material of catechism through the mail. And if you completed them, you would send you a certificate. And then all you had to do was go to a, a Catholic church and give the priest that and you could be confirmed and baptized as the Roman Catholic. I got my certificate. Never went. 
I study with the Jehovah Witnesses. They'll come over and have a Bible study with you. I studied the charismatic movement. I read the 12 volumes of Philip Schaff. I read the books on science and religion and politics and history and the cultures of the world. I studied the two landmarks down through history in the Bible and looked at them and talked about how that when you lose those landmarks in Proverbs, you enter into the fields of the fatherless. And I saw the Gentile world into the fields of the fathers always going to war. So I studied the Thirty Years' War, the Hundred Years' War, the War of the Roses, the French Revolution, the Communist Revolution, our own Civil War, the assassination of Lincoln, the assassination of Kennedy, World War I, World War II, Korea, Vietnam, and where we're at today. But in all of that, I learned some things. I learned some things before I ever entered into those things that kept me from getting messed up. And that's why I spent 10 years getting that book down. And I tell you all that, and I'm also telling you this, don't try this at home. You'll wind up losing your faith, most of you. You have to get grounded in that book. But oh, that old black back 66, brother. That old Bible that God gave us. That old book that stood the test of time. And I learned some things. And three things that I learned that I hold to this day. Number one, don't believe anything that you read about history anywhere. Unless it's substantiated in the word of God first. The only absolute truth you and I have is a book that God gives you. That fixes and defines everything in life. Second thing I learned. When I began to get my Bible down first, I began to look at it and understand it. Then I began to delve into all of these history books, all of these books that man wrote about theologies of man and the philosophies of man and all the science of man. I began to see the second great truth. And I found it in Genesis chapter 3. It was right there under my nose. Because I saw and understood it, the first thing, and I never would have got that. I wouldn't have believed those guys if I wouldn't have found this first. And I saw that the first thing the devil did, in Genesis chapter 3, when he showed up with Eve, he rewrote history. Oh, I know he said, yea, hath God said and changed it, but he did more than that. He rewrote history. God, in the past tense, had told them to do this. When the devil showed up, he rewrote history and said, now, now it means this. And Boy, when I saw that, I began to look at history in a complete different light. And I began to find the Oxford movement. I began to find, oh, what a study, the Counter-Reformation. I began to see how that history, the devil has rewritten everything about history. And if you don't have an absolute standard to judge it by, when you get into it, you're going to get caught up in it. And you're actually going to believe that our economy is doing better. And Al-Qaeda is just a bunch of guys on the back of pickup trucks. Greatest example is coming up in March, March 17th, I think what it is. Who knows what March 17th is? Raise your hand. Anybody know what March 17th is? Okay. St. <clears throat> Patrick's Day. 
And there's a classic example of history being rewritten. You go on the internet and look up St. Patrick's. He's the patron saint. Supposed to have let all the snakes out of Ireland. And he's, he's adorned as a, a, a saint in the Roman Catholic Church. And every, every, every March 17th, we have a day connected with him, and he's the patron saint, and he's, uh, you know, he's, uh, he's held up as one of the great saints of the Roman Catholic Church. He's canonized, and over there, you know, he's held up, and he's on the, in the window motifs of all the great cathedrals in Europe and, and all that stuff. Let me tell you something. He was a born-again, Bible-believing, hellfire damnation preaching that wouldn't spit on the Roman Catholic Church. Old Patrick would go into a in, into the uh, into the in the forest of of uh, of of, of uh, his country over there in Ireland, and he'd beat on a big old drum till all the pagans would come around to see what it was, and he'd pick out a leaf of an old Waldensian Bible, and he would preach the fire out of them and preach the word of God. Most people don't even know why the shamrock is always connected with St. Patrick's Day. Catholic Church will blow smoke up your rear end and tell you it's this or this and this. No, no, no. When St. Patrick wanted to get his point across to the pagans about the Trinity of God, he picked up a little clover with three leaves on it and used it as an object lesson. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Whole history rewritten. Oh, yeah. I will be down at the St. Patrick's Day Parade looking to see if any of my people are drinking the green beer. (laughs) Crazy. And you know what? When the devil did that, Eve believed every word that he said when she had just post-tense gotten the clear word of God from God himself. And the devil just come in and rewrote it. Third thing I learned. Genesis chapter 3. Did you ever look at that verse when the devil shows up? And the third thing that I learned when the devil does change something, whether it be history, whether it be your church, whether it be what you believe about God, I mean, it would be so easy if the devil just was completely black and God was white, like the light. It would be so easy to have darkness versus the light. That God is light, but the devil realizes that he can't deceive anybody that way, so he transforms himself into an angel of life. And you know what he did with Eve? Out of everything that God said, he left it the same. He just changed 20%. And when devil rewrites history, he'll leave God in it. He'll leave this in it. He'll leave that in it. He'll just change 20% at the minimum. And that 20% in Genesis chapter 3, folks, would have landed us in the lake of fire. So in all my reading and all my studying of the human race on planet Earth, I went in knowing that the devil had rewritten history with at least a 20% false concept, so I didn't buy anything. I couldn't get straight out of the book that God gave me. In other words, I ran all I learned through the book 
not around the book. And as old Bob Jones Sr. said one time, every bad thing in this life is a good thing twisted. Somebody said one time, if you would take all the literature that has been written by man, from the beginning of man recording, and lay it on the ground. You first you'd have a you'd have a you'd have a square, a hundred square miles, covered everything on it. And then if you'd continue to stack everything that man wrote, it would stack up and go out past the orbit of the moon, which is two hundred and fifty thousand miles. And if I'm gonna tell you something, if we could get all of that stuff together and put it in one pile and stack it out past the moon on the authority of the word of God, I'm gonna tell you something. You can judge every piece that was ever written by any man in the light of one book that God wrote. Amen. And the quicker you get that and understand that and put those principles in your life, the better off you're gonna be. And a prudent man will look well to his going. Now look at verse 16. A wise man feareth and departeth from evil, but the fool rageth and is confident. Now the key word here is the word confident. A fool will be confident in himself, and he will deceive himself that that he is right even when he's totally wrong. See it all the time. His anger and rage will come into play when things don't work out. And his rage, his burst of anger, will be to show himself to himself and others that, uh, that he is right when others is wrong. And his anger is a badge that he wears that shows him how dedicated he is to his viewpoint. To anybody who disagrees with him. His anger and his rage falsely will bolster his confidence because unleashed anger will always be a mask of his weakness and his failure. You want to remember that. Now a wise man doesn't trust in himself. He knows better. He's got a book that will give him a solid right principle in every area of his life. He just has to follow and apply him in his own life. Proverbs 3, verse 5 and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, all thine heart, and lean not into thine own understanding. All thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. Colossians 3, 3 says, that a man worships God in the spirit and rejoices in Christ Jesus and puts no confidence in the flesh. And 1 John 3.21 says that our confidence is toward the Lord. Now look at verse 17. Along with that, he says, He that soon is soon angry dealeth foolishly, and a man of wicked devices is hated. Usually when you're angry... You're going to wind up feeling like a fool if you ever come to yourself because you realize that what you said you had no right to say and probably shouldn't have said it the way you said it. Amen. He that is soon angry, soon angry. The reason why a man is soon angry is because he's undisciplined. He has no principles in his life. He's unstructured. He that is soon angry dealeth foolishly. So he does foolish things. He says foolish things. 
and a way of wicked devices is hated. It gets to the point later on where not only is his anger and his foolishness deceiving himself, but now he starts taking advantage of other people with it. Now, let's talk about anger for a moment. Anger is a, is a real issue with a lot of people. Yet at the same time, we know that anger is a God-given emotion. God gave it to us. Now, anger used properly is okay. And as I tell you, there's always a principle in the Bible. And you want a principle, a definitive verse on anger in the Bible? Be Matthew chapter 5, verse 22. This is the principle behind anger. There's nothing wrong with getting angry as long as the principle is behind it. And the story here in Matthew 5, 22 is, uh, is Jesus in the New Testament. He goes into the temple and their money changers are in the temple. And he's upset, he's mad, he's angry, and he turns over the table. Uh, but he had a right to do that. Because the definitive verse in Matthew chapter 5, verse 22 says, He that is angry without a cause is in danger of the judgment. You see, when you anger is okay if you have a cause. These these wimpy Christians who walk around and think you shouldn't be angry. I'm going to tell you something. If you're a red-blooded Christian, you ought to be angry about some things all the time. And you have just cause for it. It's the undue anger. Anger about self. Anger is because of your selfishness. Anger because of your lack of being principled and disciplined. Now, I'll just say this to you. Jesus went into the temple. Matthew 5, 22 says, He that, he that uh, is angry without a cause is guilty in the judgment. Let me show you how the devil works. Let me show you how some of your brethren work. That Bible says in Matthew 5, 22 that he that is angry without a cause is guilty before the judgment of the court. And yet Jesus goes in and he turns over the temple and he turns over the tables and he throws everybody out. And he gets a cord, whips them back and throws them out of there and, uh, and, and, and scatters them out of the place. But he had a cause, you see. So if you go pick you up a new NIV, the new love of so many of God people's lives, and you go to Matthew chapter 5, 22, they took out for without a cause. They just said, he that is angry with his brother is guilty before the court. And you know what they did by doing that? The old devil, your buddy? They made Jesus Christ a guilty sinner before the court because they take out without a cause. Now, some of you don't have a problem with that. I'll tell you right now, that makes me angry. Bible says, Bible says in Proverbs, you say, well, the Bible says, have make no friend with an angry man, Proverbs, but then don't make no friend with me because I'm angry. <laughs> That's how subtle it is. And people just get it and say, oh, it's so wonderful. Yeah, it made Jesus Christ a guilty sinner. We didn't even get into back in Ezekiel and Isaiah where it gives the title of Jesus Christ to the devil. We won't even go there. I don't want to give you a heart attack. Now, let me throw you a little trivia question out here, you Bible scholars. Two places in the Bible. In the New Testament where Jesus goes in and throws out the, the guys. One is in John chapter 2, verse 16. 
The other one is three years later in Matthew chapter 21, verse 13. Two distinct different times, three years apart. In the first one, when he goes in there, throws them out, he says, you have made my father's house a den of thieves. Second time he goes in, three years later, Matthew 21, he says, you have made my house a den of thieves. Question is, think about it. What's the difference between the father's house, now it's his house? That'll give you a little insight into the Bible. What's the difference? I'm not going to give you the answer. I just want to throw that out while we're here. We're going to move on here. Now, anger comes in a person's life. Do as I said. He's undisciplined in weak life. Lack of control. He who's angry, control, uh, he who angers you controls you. They're undisciplined in the principles of the Word of God. And I say it all the time, the principles of the Word of God are absolutely important. We have a couple of things here that always get you started. Most people don't think of it. We have a discipleship one. Discipleship one is ten lessons. In that ten lessons, you're going to, as a new Christian, you're going to learn probably 20 of the first fundamental basic principles of the Christian life. Then we have what we call discipleship two. Discipleship two will bring you up to the next level, and you're probably going to learn, what, 30 or 40 principles there. And the longer you stay around and apply yourself here, the more principles you learn, and pretty soon you start operating by those principles, and pretty soon it starts to work for you. And anger comes in a person's life because they're undisciplined. They're undisciplined, so when something comes into their life because they have no principles, they react to it. Reacting to a problem is like a knee jerk. Somebody hits you in the knee and you jerk back. So you hit your elbow and you pull it back. You hit your head and you pull it back. That's a, that's a, that's a, that's a reaction. And we as God's people never need to react to anything. We got to respond because when you respond, means that you get faced with a situation. Instead of reacting to it, ah, the principles float in and the principles soften your response and brings it around to the right response. Reaction is of the flesh. Response is based on the principles. It's just that simple. The ability to process any issue through the principles of the Word of God. Filtering out wrong actions and leaving the right ones. Now look at the last part of that verse. And a man of wicked devices is hated. An angry man with wicked devices to use and hurt people. Using them for his own personal gain, he will be hated. I gave you a verse a little while ago, just kidding, Proverbs 22, 24, make no friend with an angry man. Most people won't. They don't want to be around them. Angry people will be some of the loneliest people you ever meet. That's why they're so angry. Nobody wants to be around them. So they're always hanging out with a crowd that makes them laugh or doing this or doing that or telling jokes to try to get it going, but nobody wants to be around them. Angriness in a man or a woman will be uh, in his heart. And then it'll move into his spirit. It always starts in the heart. Something will happen. Something will transpire that hurts somebody. Hey, look, I get it. A lot of people don't go to churches because they've been burned by churches. I get that. Come on. Come on. Aren't you bigger than that? Have you ever eaten at a bad restaurant? So you quit eating? Quit going to restaurants? But you see how easy it is to do wrong than it is to do right? Churches are going to burn you. 
When a church burns you, you got two ways to look at it. You can say, oh, man, I'm not going back to churches anymore. You know, I just, that just that for me. I didn't do what's right. I didn't do that. Hey, let me tell you something. You can look at it that way or you can look at it. You know what? God gave me a good experience and that was a tough time. But you know what? I thank God for it because I'm smarter now coming out of it than I was going into it. It's your choice. It's your choice. But something will happen in a person's life, maybe a bad relationship, maybe bad marriage, maybe something that left a bad taste in their mouth. Now, you know, it's a thing where uh, they, they, they don't deal with it biblically. They don't get the help that they need. So they struggle with it, and it's in their heart. And pretty soon, like Saul, it moves into their spirit. And when it moves into your spirit, it's going to affect everything and everybody around you. And pretty soon you're going to find yourself getting outraged at things that are absolutely ridiculous. You're going to find yourself, you're going to take the dog out. They're not going to go to the bathroom fast enough on a cold night. So you're going to yank the dog and say, come on, just get inside. Just go inside. And then you're mad because you got to clean that up. You told him to. And you know what? After 20, 30 years, many times they don't even remember what happened anymore. What the root cause was it? But it all comes down to the fact that they won't deal with it. Let me tell you something. The only way you can, we can fix whatever issues we have is to stop and deal with where it's at right now and then begin that maintenance program to get it to work for you. And in time... That anger will spread and cover every area of your life over every issue, over something that happened 20 years ago. You know, somebody said one time that bitterness is, boy, so many of God's people are bitter about things. And bitterness, the best example I ever heard of bitterness or best explanation of it, is like you're really upset with somebody and you hate them. So you drink poison to show them who's really right. And you wind up dying, and they just go on with life. Bitterness doesn't affect the person that you're bitter against. It destroys you. Anger doesn't solve anything when it's without a cause. It destroys you. And boy, Proverbs is an incredible book. We'll hold up here. Proverbs is an incredible book. And as we get deeper into it, the more you see how it applies to every aspect of our lives. When you build your relationship with God, you build it in two ways. You'll either build it doctrinally, learning the teachings of the Bible, and then the principles, learning the principle side of the Bible. And as you grow, you'll learn to turn the doctrine of the Bible into the principles of the Bible and into the practical side of the Bible. And then you have the ability to maintenance your problem.